Well, we're going to read chapter 31 of James Harriet's All Creatures Great and Small. Father, we give you thanks uh, that in the midst of a world that uh, we don't understand, there are little things that you give us wisdom to know how to handle, to treat, to uh, take care of. And uh, in this book, we see opportunities for the uh, ways to care for those uh, around us and the animals they have. And so we thank you, Lord, that you've made people who have that ability. Amen. So chapter 31. I came suddenly and violently awake, my heart thudding and pounding in time with the insistent summons of the telephone. These bedside phones were undoubtedly an improvement on the old system, when you had to gallop downstairs and stand shivering with your bare feet on the tiles of the passage. But this explosion... A few inches from your ear, in the small hours when the body was weak and the resistance low, was shattering. I felt sure it couldn't be good for me. The voice at the other end was offensively cheerful. I have a mare unfolding. She doesn't seem to be getting on with the job. Reckon foal must be laid wrong. Can you come and give me a hand? My stomach contracted to a tight ball. This was just a little bit too much. Once out of bed in the middle of the night was bad enough. But twice was unfair. In fact, it was sheer cruelty. I had had a hard day and had been glad to crawl between the sheets at midnight. I had been hauled out at one o'clock to an awkward calving and hadn't got back till near nearly three. What was the time now? Three fifteen. Ugh! I'd only had a few minutes sleep, and a foaling twice as difficult as a calving as a rule. What a life! What a bloody awful life! I muttered into the receiver. Right, Mr. Dixon, I'll come straight away, and shuffled across the room, yawning and stretching, feeling the ache in my shoulders and arms. I looked down at the pile of clothing in the chair. I had taken them off, put them on again, taken them off already tonight, and something in me rebelled at the thought of putting them on yet again. With a weary grunt, I took my Macintosh from the back of the door and donned it over my pajamas, and went downstairs to where my Wellington stood outside the dispensary door and stuck my feet into them. It was a warm night. What was the point of getting dressed up if I'd only have to strip off again at the farm? I opened the back door and trailed slowly down the long garden, my tired mind only faintly aware of the fragrance that come that came from the darkness. I reached the yard at the bottom, opened the double doors into the lane, and got the car out to the garage. In the silent town, the buildings glowed whitely as the headlights swept across the shuttered shop fronts to tightly drawn curtains. Everybody was asleep. Everybody except me. James Harriet, creeping sore and exhausted towards another spell of hard labor. Why had I ever decided to become a country vet? I must have been crazy to pick a job where you worked seven days a week and through the night as well. Sometimes I felt as though the practice was a malignant living entity, testing me, trying me out, putting the pressure on more and more to see just when, at what point, I would drop dead. It was a completely unconscious reaction which hoisted me from my bath of self-pity and left me dripping on the brink regarding the immediate future with a return of some of my natural optimism. For one thing, Dixon's place was down at the foot of the dale just off the main road, and they had that usual luxury, that unusual luxury, electric light in the buildings, and I couldn't be all that tired, not at the age of 24, with all my faculties unimpaired. I'd take a bit of killing yet. I smiled to myself and relapsed into the state of half-suspended animation, which was normal to me at these times. 
a sleepy blanketing of all the senseless senses except those required for the job at hand. Many times over the past months, I had got out of bed, driven far into the country, done my job efficiently, and returned to bed without ever having been fully awake. I was right about Dixon's. The graceful Clydesdale mare was in a well-lit loose box, and I laid out my ropes and instruments with a feeling of deep thankfulness. As I tipped antiseptic into the steaming bucket, I watched the mare straining and paddling her limbs. The effort produced nothing. There was no feet. There were no feet protruding from the vulva. There was almost certainly a mal-presentation. Still thinking hard, I had removed my Macintosh and was jerked out of my reverie by a shout of laughter from the farmer. Oh, help us! What the foldy rolls? I looked down at my pajamas, which were pale blue with an arresting broad red stripe. This, Mr. Dixon, I replied with dignity, is my night attire. I didn't bother to dress. Oh, I see now. The farmer's eyes glinted impishly. I'm sorry, but I thought I got the wrong chap for a second. I saw a feller just like you at Blackpool last year. Same suit exactly, but he had a strippy, stripy top hat, too, and a stick. Did a champion little dance. Can't oblige you, I'm afraid, I said with a wan smile. I'm just not in the mood right now. I stripped off, noting with interest the deep red grooves caused by the calf's teeth a couple of hours ago. Those teeth had been like razors, peeling off neat little rolls of skin every time I pushed my arm past them. The mare trembled as I felt my way inside her. Nothing, nothing, then just a tail and the pelvic bones and the body and hind legs disappearing way beyond my reach. Breach presentation, easy in the cow for a man who knew his job, but tricky in the mare because of the tremendous length of the foal's legs. It took me a sweating, panting half hour with ropes and a blunt hook on the end of a flexible cane to bring the first leg round. The second leg came more easily, and the mare seemed to know there was no obstruction now. She gave a great heave, and the foal shot out onto the straw with myself arms around his body, sprawling on top of it. To my delight, I felt the small form jerk convulsively. I felt no movement while I was working and had decided that it was dead. But the foal was very much alive, shaking its head and snorting out the placental fluid it had inhaled during its delayed entry. When I had finished toweling myself, I turned to see the farmer with an abnormally straight face, holding out my colorful jacket with like a valet. Allow me, sir, he said gravely. Okay, okay, I laughed. I'll get properly dressed next time. As I was putting my things in the car boot, the farmer carelessly threw a parcel on to the back seat. Bit of butter for you, he muttered. When I started the engine, he bent level with the window. I think a bit about that. I think a bit about that mare, and I've been badly wanting a full out of her. Thank ye, lad. Thank ye very much. He waved as I moved away, and I heard his parting cry. You did all right for a Kentucky minstrel. I leaned back in my seat and peered through heavy lids at the empty road unwinding in the pale morning light. The sun had come up, a dark crimson ball hanging low over the misted fields. I felt utterly content, warm with the memory of the fold trying to struggle onto its knees, its absurdly long legs still out of control. Grand that the little beggar had been alive after all. There was something, des something desolate about delivering a lifeless creature. The Dixon farm was in the low country where the dale widened out and gave on to the great plain of York. I had to cross a loop of the busy road which connected the west riding with the industrial northeast. A thin tendril of smoke rose from the chimney of all of the all-night transport cafe which stood there, and as I slowed down to take the corner, a, a faint but piercing smell of cooked cooking found its way into the car.
The merest breath, but rich in the imagery of fried sausages and beans and tomatoes and chips. Oh, I was starving. I looked at my watch. 5.15. I wouldn't be eating for a long time yet. I turned in among the lorries on the broad strip of tarmac. Hastening towards the still-lighted building, I decided that I wouldn't be greedy. Nothing spectacular, just a nice sandwich. I'd been there a few times before, and the sandwiches were very good, and I deserved some nourishment after my hard night. I stepped into the warm interior where groups of lorry drivers sat behind mounted plates. But as I crossed the floor, the busy clatter died and was replaced by a tense silence. A fat man in a leather jacket sat transfixed, a loaded fork halfway to his mouth, while his neighbor, gripping a huge mug of tea in an oily hand, stared with bulging eyes at my ensemble. It occurred to me then that bright red striped pajamas and Wellingtons might seem a little unusual in those surroundings, and I hastily buttoned my Macintosh, which had been billowing behind me. Even closed, it was on the short side, and at least a foot of pajama leg showed above my boots. Resolutely, I strode over to the counter. An expressionless blonde bulging out of a dirty white overall on the breast pocket of which was described Dora regarded me blankly. A ham sandwich and a bowl and a cup of bovril, please, I said huskily. As the blonde put a teaspoonful of bovril into a cup and filled it with a hissing jet of hot water, I was uncomfortably aware of the silence behind me and of the battery of eyes focused on my legs. On my right, I could just see the leather-jacketed man. He filled his mouth and chewed reflectively for a few moments. Takes all kinds, don't it, Ernest? He said in a judicial tone. Does indeed, Kenneth, does indeed, replied his companion. Would you say, Ernest, that this is what the Yorkshire country gentleman is wearing this spring? Could be, Kenneth, could be. Listening to the titters from the rear, I concluded that these two were the accepted cafe wags. Best to eat up quickly and get out. Dora pushed the thickly meated sandwich across the counter and spoke with all the animation of a sleepwalker. That'll be a shilling. I slipped my hand inside my coat and encountered the pocketless flannelette beneath. Oh, my money was in my trousers back in Derby. A wave of sickly horror flooded me as I began to panic. Frantic, meaningless search through my Macintosh. I looked wildly at the blonde and saw her slip the sandwich underneath the counter. Look, I've come out without any money. I've been in here before. Do you know who I am? Dora gave a single bored shake of her head. Well, never mind. I babbled. I'll pop in with the money next time I'm passing. Dora's expression did not alter, but she raised one by at one eyebrow fractionally. She made no effort to retrieve the sandwich from its hiding place. Escape was the only thing in my mind now. Desperately, I sipped at the scalding fluid. Kenneth pushed back his plate and began to pick his teeth with the match. Ernest, he said, as though coming to a weighty conclusion, it's my opinion that this gentleman is eccentric. Eccentric, sniggered Ernest into his tea. Bloody daft, more like. Ah, but not so daft, Ernest. Not daft enough to pay for his grub. Ugh, you have a point there, Kenneth. A definite point. You bet I have. He's enjoying a nice cup of bovril on the house, and if he hadn't mistimed his fumble, he'd be at the sandwich, too. Dora moved a bit sharpish in for him there. Another five seconds, and he'd have had his choppers in the ham. True, true, muttered Ernest, seemingly content with his role of straight man. <laughs> Kenneth put his, his away his match, sucked his teeth noisily, and leaned back. There's another possibility we haven't considered. He could be on the run. Escape convict, you mean, Kenneth. 
I do, Ernest. I do indeed. But them fellers always have arrows on their uniforms. Ah, some of them do, but I heard somewhere that some of the prisoners is going in for stripes now. I had had enough. Tipping the last searing drops of Bovril down my throat, I made headlong for the door. As I stepped out into the early morning sunshine, Kenneth's final pronouncement reached me. Bradley got away from a working party. Look at them Wellingtons. <laughs> All right. Great story. Love you guys. Bye.